This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are joined by a special guest, Steve Park, founder of Little Lights Urban Ministries in Washington, D.C. Starting from nothing in 1995, the organization now has 14 full-time and 40 part-time staff, as well as 600 volunteers annually. He teaches race literacy for Christians, provides after-school and summer programs, adult and employment programs, Christian mentoring and Bible studies, and so much more. He and his wife, Mary, have been married for over 20 years and have two children. Steve, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. And if you want to add any extra detail to what I said, uh, there's there's seriously so much more. Like, I'm not I'm not joking. Like, what you've been doing over the last, um, tw- oh gosh, almost 30 years um, is, is really incredible. And we're going to get into that. But if there's any extra detail you want to add there, feel free to uh, expand on what I've said already. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I was born in South Korea. I moved to uh, Houston, Texas when I was like seven years old and then moved to the D.C. suburbs um, when I was 14. And um, but, yeah, I was very devout atheist in high school and college. But um, but, yeah, so I went to high school in the D.C. area and then after college came back, you know, became a Christian after college and and started Little Lights not long after I became a Christian, actually. And so. So yeah, I have two beautiful kids. Uh, one just graduated high school, and she's going to be going off to Pomona College in the fall. And my son is going to be a junior in um, high school. And yeah, my wonderful wife is uh, also works full-time at Little Lights, too. And so, um, yeah, we've been doing this together for quite a long time and working together and raising kids together uh, all in this ministry context. So uh, it's been quite quite a journey, for sure. Yeah, well, Steve, I, I too just want to thank you for joining us today. This is a different kind of a situation. Usually we uh, have people that we know we're connected with. We have a story. We go back at least a little ways. And and our next question of the interview is always like, how did we how did we meet? And what do they know about me or Brent or Bema or those kind of things? And today's different because we don't have any of that backstory today. When did we meet? About 15 minutes ago. Um, and, uh, you know, the reason that I reached out, the, you know, the listeners here in season six have heard us talking about some of the ways that we're trying to just um, become better learners, uh, become more curious, become more empathetic. And I remember when I was setting up our interviews for uh, season six, I had this big list of names. And one day I looked at that list of names and all of them were men, uh, all but one of them were men, and they all looked like me. Um, and I I was just learning about how I wanted to be more, I need to do a better job of A, obviously expanding my network. Um, I have obviously insulated myself Growing up in rural Pacific Northwest, it was easy to do that. And I have to put in some work to expand my network, to hear from voices, from uh, you know our, our black and brown brothers and sisters, from the indigenous community, from other people of color. Um, and I need, to, I need to listen and I need to learn. And so I reached out. I, I don't know. How many episodes was it, Brent? We had Kate Schmigall from Bittersweet on here and... I mean, the work that they do, this collecting all these amazing stories of people doing amazing things and amazing work. And I thought, Kate, give me a list of people that I can reach out to, to, to help me learn and to help me listen to conversations that I'm not having enough of. And Steve's name was at the top of her list. So I, I jumped on a bunch of websites and I looked at what Steve was doing and, and that's why I reached out and Steve was gracious and immediately said yes. And we set up a time and, and here he is. So Steve, I want to ask you if you can tell us just a little bit about Little Lights, um, kind of on two levels, like, hey, what is the broad 30,000 foot, what are the, what's the big objective that Little Lights is, is working at? And then, and then on another level, how, how do you see that lived out and all the little small things that you do to pursue that objective every single day? Yeah. Um, you know, little lights, we're very much about the gospel, right? And, and I mean, I mean that in like most holistic sense, um, the Bible talks about the gospel being good news for the poor. And, um, and when Jesus talks about the gospels, you know, he often talks about the kingdom of God and, uh, that the kingdom of God is, is, 
at hand and it's coming to us. And so, you know, the broad, the broadest perspective is that Little Lights is really about being an expression of the kingdom of God uh, on earth. And so a place where there's love and compassion and relationship building, um, uh, cause for justice, uh, reconciliation, um, all the beautiful things that are uh, captured uh, in the kingdom of God and in the Sermon on the Mount and and being trying to be a, a, a earthly representation of, of the kingdom. And, um, and so, you know, little lights at the core of everything it, it is about love is how do we love our neighbors? How do we love these students? You know, I'm Korean American working in an African, you know, pretty, pretty much all African-American community, mostly in public housing communities in DC. And so reach, you know, reaching across those racial lines because yeah, in the kingdom of God, we're not going to have segregated neighborhoods and segregated churches. Uh, we're going to be together and um, trying to express that in, in real life here on earth and showing the beauty of the kingdom here on earth. Um, and so, yeah, we do that through relationship, we through that through programs, helping, you know, students and families who are living in very deep poverty um, in a city like this, DC, you know, we're only 12 blocks from the U S Capitol building, the public housing is. And, uh, but, you know, families are growing up in very deep poverty and, um, you know, average income, you know, probably 13 to 16,000 per year per household, um, you know, with children. So very difficult uh, environment for, for kids to grow up in and trying to be the, really the hands and feet of, of Christ in, in those communities um, and trying to deal with integrity and with excellence. So that's kind of the broadest view about, about what Little Lights uh, is about. And the second half of the question, could you repeat the second half of the question again? Yeah, just maybe even some of like, what are the, what are some of those like on a, on a, on, on the ground? What is that programming? And maybe just maybe some of your favorite examples of what that practical programming and experience looks like as you do that work. Yeah. I mean, you know, Little Light started as a Christian tutoring program and a Bible study uh, is inside my parents' business. And so we still do a lot of academic support. So we, um, you know, assess the kids uh, throughout the year and their academics, try to really figure out what um, academic needs they have and be very specific to and cater to each individual child. And, and so we do the assessment test. We come up with a curriculum that's really tailored for that particular student. We try to have as much one-to-one tutoring as, as possible. And uh, because kids just need that level of attention. And um and so we, we have, you know, usually on a regular school year, about 110 regular weekly volunteers that work with our students. We also try to hire as much as possible from the community. So about 20, about 25 employees um, that work for us, you know, mostly part-time, are residents of the community. So um, wow. we're, we're like the, the number one job provider um, into the public housing communities as well as a service provider. So to us, it's a win-win to be able to provide jobs for adults and and young adults in the community while providing really high quality, excellent uh, service uh, for students. And, um, and, you know, we try to be innovative too. And one of the things we took on about 10 years ago from another organization is called the clean green team. It's a landscaping social enterprise where we do job training as well as provide ongoing employment, um, for men in the community, you know, some are returning citizens uh, to, to learn landscaping and to do landscaping work and, and get a living wage uh, doing that work. So that's been really life changing for men to um, to have a job, to be part of a team and really almost an extended family for them. I mean, that's a very difficult job. You know, D.C., you know, it can get to 100 degrees in the summer, uh, very humid, but they're working from 7 a.m. to sometimes into the evening doing landscaping work in the heat um, and doing it with excellence. And so, um, you know, that's been really life-changing for these men. And our newest program is our college and career program. We started during the pandemic and partly like we had high school students who were sitting around at home, you know, they weren't doing well in virtual schooling or they were had hoped to go to college, but they couldn't figure out how to get into college. And so we started our college and career program in, in 20, January of 2021, 
And it's been uh, incredible how much its impact it's already had helping students apply to college, get scholarships, work on financial aid, improve their grade point average so they can have access to more colleges and scholarships. And so, you know, one of our students, Denisha, just this year, you know, got a full ride scholarship to George Mason University in Northern Virginia. She was only one of 15 students in BC to to get this full ride scholarship. Um, And to see, you know, someone who was struggling, didn't, couldn't figure out the college process, not getting enough help at school to be able to get a full four year uh, scholarship to a major university in the area was really um, gratifying and, and seeing other students thrive in the program has been really um, satisfying. And, um, and so I can tell you, yeah, a lot of stories and, you know, we've, I've been doing it a long time over 20, 26 years. And so there's a lot of, a lot of stories, but, you know, you know, one young man named De- uh, Dwayne, who i met when he was like eight years old uh, is, is now, you know, over 30 and um, is married, you know, is a leader in this church has a full-time job um, at a nonprofit organization. And, you know, I got to be there for his high school graduation, his, his college graduation, his wedding wow. and the birth of his first child. I mean, that's one of the benefits of doing this a long time is you can see people you knew, you knew grow up with you and, uh, and, and you get to grow up with them. And so, um, so that's been really rewarding, but yeah, too many stories to even think about, but uh, doing it such a long time, but, uh, really rewarding and, and gratifying as well. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So being in DC, um, obviously there's a lot of national stuff that's going on. Um, but like the people that you're, you're working with are not necessarily, uh, in, in that world, in that sphere of influence. And so there's this reality of like, they have these basic needs that anybody has anywhere, but there's all this attention within your community on all of this national stuff that really doesn't have an effect on, on the people around you. Uh, What is it like to do ministry in DC so close to the capital and everything else that's going on? Like, is that, is any of that attention a blessing? Is it a distraction? Uh, what are what are some of the challenges um, that you have there in the in the ministry that you're doing? Yeah, you know, because I've only done ministry in DC, basically, I don't have a lot to like compare and contrast. And you know, and you know, the way my mind works is like, how, how are all all these things you know connected, right? Because our families do live on federal federally owned land, so. HUD, you know, which is part of the national government, you know, uh, owns the property, but it's, it works through the DC government and DC housing authority. Um, so there's all these interconnections between the federal and, and, and the local. Um, and then we have like volunteers who will are connected right to the, they work on the Hill or they might work for a Congressman. So we've had volunteers come through, um, you know, who are part of more part of that world. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm more f- focused definitely on the local the kind of neighborhood level and, and to a certain degree, the local city level. Um, and, you know, DC is, is also transient because of that, because, you know, some people come here for just school or federal government jobs, and then they might move on after a few years, go to grad school. So it is also a very transient city. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot to compare it to, but um one of the challenges I feel like for D.C. is that the city proper, you know, District of Columbia, is not part of Maryland or Virginia. So I do sometimes feel like D.C. as a city is more disconnected from the suburban area because it's under a completely different jurisdiction. So there is a sense of like separatedness between the District of Columbia from, let's say, the suburb suburbs of Maryland and suburbs of Northern Virginia or Virginia. Um, so I feel like it is a little, um, a little different probably than most other cities in, in that sense, because it's not part of a state. And so there's a suburban urban divide that's I think a little bit more pronounced in, in DC, but, um, but yeah, those are things I think of. Steve, when you think of what drove you into this work, do you have a, a personal exto- uh, like a personal experience that like did you did you know what it was like to be in the midst of some of this struggle yourself? Was it somebody that you met? How does your 
personal story and experience like line up in such a way that you end up doing this for decades? Mm-hmm. What is it that pulled you there? Yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned briefly in the you know, intro, you know, I was a very devout atheist in high school and college. So I, I remember like, going to church. My parents kind of took us to church when we were young and, and they were mostly you know, Korean, Korean American churches, although we went to a Baptist children's service for a while in Houston. Um, but I, be, you know, just after high school, after I started high school, I just thought, you know, you either have to believe in science or religion. And I was like, you know, I believe in science. I believe, uh, that, you know, we can't, there can't be a God. Like it just doesn't make rational sense. And so I, I became an atheist and I on college campus, I would, argue with Christians who believed in God. And I said, like, how do you believe in God in the 20th century? Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, but, you know, I wasn't a very joyful person or a happy person. I socialized a lot. I went to, in college, I went to a lot of parties and clubs and bars, kind of trying to distract myself from uh, really having to look at myself or look inward. And uh, I had probably what you call a walking depression. So I got pretty good grades. You went to most of my classes, but yeah, definitely not super hopeful or joyful. And um, I moved back to the DC area after I graduated college and lived with my best friend from college. He was Iraqi American. He was wealthy kid. He got an Alfa Romeo convertible for his college graduation. Um, But he was kind of bored with life and and he would always look at his uh, stock quotes um, when he, you know, even at work, he was always constantly looking at his stocks, hmm. uh, partly because he was bored. And, um, and, but he took a vacation one day and came back and said, you know, I don't care about the stock market anymore. And I was like, shocked. I was like, what? <laughs> that was like, you're obsessed with the stock market before you went on this vacation. And what had happened was he didn't have a conversion experience, but he took a drug called ecstasy. And he said, Basically, this is the greatest thing ever invented. Like, this is what we've been looking for. Mm. And so I had a bad drug experience in college. So I was kind of really afraid to try anything else. Um, but he was very persuasive. So I took half a pill of this, of this drug. And I didn't really feel anything. But I also didn't ex- experience anything bad. So I took the other half. And then I had this sort of peak high experience on this drug. And I said, I told him, I was like, yeah, this is, this is what we've been looking for. So he and I sort of became little evangelists for this drug because we thought we had found what we had been looking for. And uh, so he and I started doing this drug pretty regularly for several months. And um, I was at a rave one night. It was like four in the morning, five in the morning. I hadn't slept all night. All of a sudden, I just was completely tormented by this fear and it was not just a general fear of death or uh, uh, whatever but it was I felt like there were there was I sensed evil spirits that's how it felt and I'm an atheist I'm not supposed to believe in these types of things but I can really only describe it as a supernatural experience Um, because I was the, the level of fear was so intense and um and it didn't wear off. If it was just completely chemical, I would have thought, you know, it's going to wear off after a few days or a week or two weeks. But it, the intensity of this fear was not wearing off over, and then it went into several weeks and going into months. So I had no idea what to do. And so I finally had to tell my parents that I took this drug. You know, they work 80, 90 hours a week running their small business. They had no idea how to help me. Mm-hmm. Um, a book that helped me as an atheist go in the right direction was a book called The Road Less Traveled, written by uh, Scott Peck, who's a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And basically, he described in the book, well, the first line of the book is, life is difficult. So it grabbed my attention because what I was going through was so difficult. And the messaging that you often get in you know, pop culture is that life's supposed to be easy. If you're like young, American, college educated, like life's supposed to be easy. Mm-hmm. But what I was going through was more difficult than anything I could have possibly imagined. And the, also the premise of the book is that love, the feeling of being valuable is the foundation to mental health. 
And as I was reading the book, I realized that this was my existential problem. Mm. It wasn't that I didn't have more money or I wasn't more popular or I didn't have the right girlfriend. It was that I did not feel valuable as a person that had a lot of feelings of worthlessness. And it really helped me to realize that this is what I needed to needed help with. So I did what the book recommended, went to see a therapist and try to practice what the book said I need to, needed to do, which was a practice vulnerability and, and being you know be more transparent with how I was feeling and doing. And so I was at the therapist's office. I was able to tell first time in my life, a human being that I was lonely and scared and exhausted um, and try to really be honest with where I, I was and where, what I was feeling. And it was New Year's Eve of 1993. I was sharing this with my sister. I was like sharing with my sister, like, I'm losing the will to live. Like, I'm so tired. I'm so scared. Uh, I'm miserable and I'm fearful and I can't sleep and eat right. And I was losing the will to live. And I was telling her this. And she actually didn't say a single word. She embraced me physically, but she did it with such tenderness Mm. and compassion that I just started to weep uncontrollably for like 30 straight minutes, like bawling my eyes out in her arms, mm. um, experiencing like grace and compassion and understanding in a way that I've never experienced before. And, um, and I felt like a little child. So when the Bible talks about like, unless you become uh, like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Like I really resonate with with that, those types of verses, because I know what it feels like as an adult to literally feel like a child. Um, and, and that was that kind of experience. And so, and that, that particular experience changed my whole outlook on life. I realized that the what the world really needs more than anything else is love and compassion, huh. that our world is starving for authentic compassion and love. And I had experienced it. And I was like, this is what actually people need, even if they don't realize they need it. Mm. And and so it changed my outlook on the world. And it made me realize there's a lot of suffering in this world. There's a lot of loneliness in the world. And this is in wealthier communities, like the one I went to high school in, as well as the poverty stricken communities where my parents in the near where my parents owned a business there's a lot of need for compassion and love. And, um, and my parents, you know, so the irony is, you know, to this day, I still don't know if my sister would consider herself a Christian. I'm not, you know, still not sure. Um, mm-hmm. But my parents finally convinced me to attend a church and as a Korean American sort of charismatic church. And the way they convinced me was to tell me that the senior pastor like used to do worse drugs than you, you did when you were, when he was younger. <laughs> So that was a good selling point. That was a smart selling point. And uh, I found it comforting <laughs> Sure. because the last thing I wanted to do was walk into a church and have the pastor give me a speech on, you know, just saying no to drugs or whatever. <laughs> um, right. But when I heard the sermon, you know, walked in and heard the sermon and he, I think he shared his testimony at the uh, at a sermon. I, I realized that yeah, this pastor actually understands what real love and compassion is. And so I started attending the church regularly, hearing the sermons, and I started getting better. I started becoming less fearful. I started understanding, um, you know, theology better. Um, But the book that actually got me to become a Christian was, ironically, a book called World Religions by Houston Smith. Mm -hmm. And there's an overview book of the five major religions. The last chapter was on Christianity, and it described the life of Jesus. And I was like, oh, you know, other religions, there's like truth to other religions. There's like good things about other religions. But there's something about the life of Jesus as I was reading about it Mm. that really struck me and really convicted me. And what really convicted me about Jesus was his lifestyle and his way of life. Like he loved, radically loved the poor, the outcast, the lepers, even prostitutes, and just kind of like, of the rejects of society Jesus radically loved and ultimately like sacrificed his life um, for all people. But like he had a special love for even those on the margins who the society rejected. 
And something about that reality of this radical love of Jesus, like, really convicted me and said, this guy is the one I'm supposed to follow. Like, this is the person I'm supposed to follow. And it was like an instinctual thing. And I remember, like, falling to my knees and repenting. And what I was repenting of was, man, I've lived my whole life selfishly for my own desires. Mm. Like my life has been all about what I want and what I desire and how much I can get more of what I want. But here was this Jesus like serving others, sacrificing, sacrificing his life, showing compassion to the least of these. I'm almost like, man, this is the guy who really knows how to live life. And I remember like dropping to the ground, repenting, just like weeping in repentance, uh, being really convicted of how selfish I had lived my life and how totally different Jesus uh, lived his life. And so that was my entry into discipleship. So for me, discipleship was not about getting saved and going to heaven. It's like, oh, I need to become more like Jesus and, 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 and live more and learn how to live the way he does. And, uh, as, and as I was going through all these changes in my life, I started volunteering in a lower income community where my parents owned a business and, uh, and started working with kids in the community. And the way I started Little Lights was I met an eighth grader named Daryl, who was a football player, a lineman on his football, middle school football team, like five, nine and, you know, eighth grade. He was a very gentle kid, very soft-spoken but I realized during the camp that I was volunteering and he could not read a Dr. Seuss book in eighth grade. And I was just like, Oh mm. my gosh, mm. he's going to have such a hard life. This is so heartbreaking to see him struggle even with like single syllable words in eighth grade. And I was meeting other kids at the camp that I was volunteering at who were clearly far behind academically, but also needed a lot of attention and love and just concern and care. And so just felt convicted to, yes, yeah, start, uh, continue to develop relationship by starting, you know, Little Lights and a Christian tutoring program inside my parents' business um, to really like maintain the relationships with kids uh, in the neighborhood and to share the love of Christ that I had experienced that really was beginning to deeply change my life. I wanted to share that, um, that with others. And so it's basically how Little Lights got started like 26 plus years ago. So so yeah, sorry with no funds. You know, my parents had some space. They had a small van that <laughs> I could drive around. We did a yard sale. You know, raise a few hundred dollars to to do uh, our, our uh, first camp. And so that's how little I got started. You know, way back in '95. So <laughs> man, there is a lot of Be the spirit of Bema in that story. <laughs> I love it. Uh, do you agree with that, Brent? Oh, that's yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> That's great. Um, Steve, you talked, uh, you talked about how, you know, before you didn't have any hope or any joy. Yeah. Um, and now you're, you know, a couple decades plus into this journey, um, where uh, I would assume you have, um, just so many moments of joy and, and of course struggles like ministry is, is hard work sometimes, but, um, mm -hmm. I would imagine that your, your life is so much more full of joy now. Like what are some of those, moments. I mean, you talked about, you know, um, your, your story with, with Daryl and, and Dwayne earlier, um, getting to see Dwayne's full, full story play out. Like that's, I mean, that's gotta be incredible. Um, what are, what are some more of those moments that just bring you joy? Yeah. Um, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. I remember, you know, this was fairly early on in the ministry and, um, it was near Christmas time and there was a girl named Lamita who was part of the program. And she was like five years old. Um, you know, she would, she'd get picked on a lot. She lived with like seven other female children, like cousins or sisters. And she'd get kind of picked on a lot. She wasn't like the cutest or the most popular or, you know, had the best grades. Um, but she was like really sweet, sweet child and very, you know, loving. And um, I remember near Christmas, she came up to me. And, uh, you know, she kind of shyly came up to me and, and stuck out her hand and on her palm was a quarter. Um, and, uh, she said, you know, Merry Christmas, Mr. Steve. And so she gave me this quarter for Christmas and she was coming from a very poor family. It's probably like the only money she probably had to her name. 
Um, you know, if I was five and had a quarter and you know, not a lot of money, I'd gone to the corner store, you know, and buy some candy. Right. Um, but you know, she pretty much gave all she had to like show really Christ love to me, uh, on, you know, near Christmas. Um, cause she just had that kind of generosity. And so, you know, those just humble you, you know, it's joyful too, just cause like, Oh man, it's amazing to see God work through children like that, um, to show that kind of generosity. And then there was another time I was living across the street from the public housing and there was an ambulance in front of our house. And, um, the rumors had started to spread because I guess someone had gotten stabbed, um, you know, right in front of our house. I wasn't there when it happened, but the rumor had started going around that I was the one who got stabbed. And uh, so this mom told me later on that this like four-year-old girl in the middle of the, the public housing, like got her friends together and made a prayer circle and they began to pray, you know, pray for me that I would be okay that, you know, um, and so just like incredible faith, you know, these children uh, who have so much faith and, you know, so many kids have just shown so much hospitality, like just wanting to hug and wanting to spend time and wanting to like, um, you know, just spend time with you. And, and, and many who, you know, are generous in spirit and just so hospitable to volunteers and so welcoming um, and so joyful. I mean, they, their joy really is contagious. Like, some of the most joyful times are being around kids who also just have this natural joy, even though their circumstances are, are difficult, um, bring, brings me a lot of joy. And so, um, yeah, I mean, those are some of the times that I distinctly remember just experiencing just like gratitude, you know, for the faith of, of children. And, 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 um, and uh, so, yeah, those are some of the things I can, times I can remember. Well, both those stories, uh, like they get it on just the most basic, straightforward level. Like it's, it's simplest. <laughs> like they just get it. They get the love. They get the generosity. Like they, they seem to access. Like I, I think of all these times that Jesus talks about those folks that we would typically look over or on the fringes or the margins. They, they understand the kingdom. Mm-hmm. They enter the kingdom far before so many others. Um, yeah. See, let me take this another uh, direction. I, when I got on the um, your website and was just, I mean, one of the things that I just found so striking as I got on your website was the diversity in uh, your staff, in your leadership, and the people that you serve, and everybody that, like, I just kept thinking, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the church should look like. This kind of it was just beautiful. Um, it was convicting in a good way, like this beautiful way. It was inspiring, compelling. Um, is that something that's born out of your context or is that something you've had to intentionally work at or does that just naturally, is that, is it a little bit of both? What is that experience like? I know I don't do, I do not uh, do a good enough job in the organizations that I lead creating that kind of a world. And so when I saw that, I'm like, Man, what can I learn about that from you? So, speak to that if you would for a moment. Yeah, I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, when before I became a Christian and I was an atheist in college, like I had a pretty diverse group of friends in college as an atheist. So, you know, one of my roommates was Chinese American, one was Iraqi American, one was you know, I think had dual citizenship in England and the United States. Um, and so kind of, you know, my atheist agnostic group in college was pretty diverse. Um, but then when I became a Christian, you know, my understanding of Jesus was like, oh, my gosh, Jesus is about like radical compassion and love. It's like so beautiful. Like he just loved people unconditionally, like regardless of, you know, their background or their social status or whatever. So I was like, oh, man, Jesus is all about radical love. But then. I started attending churches and visiting churches. And I think one of the things that really was made me sad, honestly, was just how racially segregated churches were. So I would visit, you know, the church that I started out at was um, pretty much all Asian or predominantly, very predominantly Asian American or Korean American. And then I would visit other churches that were all black or, you know, 90, you know, 8% white. Um, 
And it was very clear to me as someone who grew up outside of the church, like, man, Christians don't work along racial lines very much or very well. Uh, it's, and we know, we all know the famous quote, like 11 o'clock Sunday morning being the most segregated hour in America, mm, yeah. being true, you know, when Dr. King said the quote in the 60s to, to now in 2022, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think most Christians don't understand how much credibility we lose mm. when we're so segregated and when we don't work across racial lines. And, and in many cases, don't even want to talk about issues of race, right? Um, I, I, sometimes I feel like, yeah, Christians don't understand the idea of like a corporate witness, that evangelism is like just handing out tracts, you know, at the mall, <laughs> right? Right, right. Yep. Like the way we actually like function and live out our faith um, corporately is actually what people sort of see in terms of like our credibility as a faith, as a, um, as a, uh, you know, faith tradition or faith. Um, And so it just made me sound like Christianity is all about radical love. And it's like, Jesus like sacrificed his life and told us to like love one another, you know, um, radically, but I just, it just didn't happen in real life. You know, um, there was a lot of segregation. There was a lot of, uh, let's avoid each other. And, um, and so I've always felt convicted. Like that's not, that's not Jesus's teaching. This is not Jesus's teaching. And um, right. I've always had a heart to like, we're supposed to be united. Like we're supposed to work together. We're supposed to be united. And so, so my, yeah, what, you know, my parents, you know, had this business as Korean uh, American business owners in a Latino and black community um, at that time. And I just fell in love with the kids that I met, you know, across racial lines. I hadn't worked with a lot of um, Latino or African-American kids before. I really hadn't worked with kids at all, actually, before I became a Christian. And but I just fell in love with working with the students. And they and these kids were very open to me as an Asian-American, Korean-American, even though I looked different from them. They could sense that I was genuine. They could sense that I genuinely wanted to be with them and wanted to spend time with them. And they just, you know, opened up their arms to me and, and didn't, the you know, racial difference was not something that they cared that much about as kids. And so I just fell in love with working with the kids and it brought me a lot of joy working with those kids. And, uh, and so that's, I, so I want other people to experience that. And then having a diverse staff, and, and, and including full-time staff who grew up in our program, I just feel like my life is so much richer you know, yes. the people who've been the most defining, like shaping me in terms of um, my faith are African-American Christians. You know, the, yep. their sense of dedication, their sense of compassion or and humility. It, it, you know, the people who I've like, yeah, just ministered most in depth with are, have been African-American Christians. And I'd say I can't even imagine my life as a Korean American, like not having African American Christians uh, to learn from and to work alongside, it's a, I, like, I can't even imagine my life um, what it would be like. And so, I, so for me, it's like I experience so much richness in that diversity, and I'm like, people are missing out if they're not experiencing this. And so, that's why I want people to experience it at Little Lights. You know, volunteers to come and experience it, um, staff to experience it. Our board, you know. And one of the great things about it is like our students who are all African-American living in public housing, it is a total, totally normal everyday experience to have Korean-American adult in their lives, like caring for them, you know, tutoring them, mentoring them, as well as, you know, white Americans, as well as Latino, you know, African, other African-Americans. So our students are so used to a diverse group of Christian, you know, racially diverse, diverse group of Christians caring for them on a day-to-day basis. Like it's just the norm to them. Um, whereas, you know, obviously a lot of kids don't grow up seeing that kind of cooperation and diversity, um, as kids, you know, working together. So, so a follow-up to that, 
Steve, you, one of the things that you guys do at Little Lights is anti-racism training. Yeah. Um, where you not only live in this and experience this and model this, but you also help other people become more aware and educated and and grow in that. And it's part of the journey that I've been on in a while and wanting to go on. And I just, I can be so discouraged with myself sometimes Mm -hmm. as I learn more about where I'm at in my own journey. I I can be so discouraged as I try to, I don't know, engage that. And it's, that is a discouraging conversation for me. Can you give me any, give me an encouraging word in what you're seeing and what you do with anti-racism training? Mm -hmm. Is there anything beautiful hopeful <laughs> life bringing like give me something that i give give me some steve <laughs> <laughs> i will try um and, and you know my starting point is god loves unity right yes and i've experienced i've had glimpses of the beauty of unity like you know in a, in a micro scale like experiencing some of that at little lights with kids staff you know volunteers I, I've experienced the joy of experiencing kind of the micro level of, of unity in the body. And it brings a lot of joy. So I want other people to experience that joy, but there are things that get in the way um, of really experiencing a deeper sense of unity, you know, across, especially like a wider scale. And so I think when I first started out, I, I probably thought, you know, it's mostly about relationship building and, 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 and having good conversations across racial lines, finding ways to, to do some work together. Um, but I started the, I started the race literacy 101 class in um, spring of 2016. And, uh, and, you know, little lights had kind of gotten to a place where it was stable. You know, we had enough funding to be kind of stable. Uh, we had enough staffing to be stable. So I, beginning of 2016 is when I, finally kind of created a curriculum um, to have deeper conversations about race and to bring Christians together, have deeper conversations about race. And I think there, you know, there was a starting to be growing interest around it. You know, we had Trayvon Martin happen and other, you know, other sort of um, social events that kind of got people thinking more about race and bring it up to their consciousness because I think when I first started Little Lights in the 90s, it was really hard to bring people together to talk, even talk about race and have anything sort of sustained. Um, so 2016 is when I started Race Literacy 101. And, um, you know, we had about 16 people take, it, take I think at that point it was like eight weeks. And it went really well. Like we had really good conversations. And one of the curriculum pieces we use is a, a video called Race, the Power of an Illusion. It's on PBS. And it's a video that helps to gives like a, a understanding of sort of how the ideology of race sort of developed. Hmm. Um, and so it, it's a good documentary series. And that was sort of the base of the curriculum. And then I added like scripture um, as well, as well as, and then over time I added more and more history uh, in addition to more scripture. And so trying to, incorporate scriptures. I mean, this class is geared for, you know, church going audience, although we've had a number of non-Christians and hmm. people of other faiths uh, take the class. It is geared for a church going audience to help people sort of get a, a more holistic theology. And it sounds like this is, you know, right up your alley. And um, we need a, a theology too. Like the, our, the evangelical theology doesn't, um, adequately encompass issues like racial justice, racial unity. Um, it usually tends to be very individualistic, sometimes very transactional, um, focuses on just sort of getting saved. And th- that doesn't really do well f- for issues that impact people on earth, <laughs> right? Right, right? Including issues of race. Um, and so there needs to be a more holistic theology, you know, so we talk about the issue of shalom. We talk about um, what righteousness in the Bible is about, right? Because even people have gone to church for a long time, you say the word, what does the word righteousness mean? Right. And people have very little actual understanding of, or even envisioning what a righteous, a person who is righteous right. uh, acts like and behaves. Yep. Um 
And so trying to like help people shift theology, but there's a lot of history involved, including how ideology of race developed during colonial times. Um, you know, even we talk about really deep stuff like eugenics. I mean, stuff that, you know, you're not going to sure. <laughs> even learn in school. Yep. Um, you know, talking about eugenics and how scientific racism also impacted our culture and our society, you know, shaped policies, talk about redlining, really talking about helping people understand systemic racism and the ideology of race overall and ideas of racial hierarchy, how they all develop. So it makes for a very interesting conversation. And we have small group leaders who are trained and, and most of the small group facilitators are leaders of color. So, and you know, the majority of the people who take the class are white and probably majority white evangelical. Um, it tends to be, it tends to lean heavily female by 70% female, mm. but it is very encouraging to still see there are evangelical white Christians who grew up in the church, who want to learn, who want to have these discussions, who have an open mind. Um, and, the class has has definitely had an impact on people. I mean, I have had many people basically say things like, this class rocked my world and shaped, reshaped sort of the paradigm and is reshaping the paradigm. Um, and it is, I mean, if you can stick through the entire class, you, you, you can't look at race the same way after taking a class. It's just not possible. Right. If, if, right. Unless you're so close, but if you are that close, then you probably won't sit through the, <laughs> the entire class. Right, right. But uh, so many people have just thanked me and said, this really was life-changing, perspective-changing. I'm going to keep learning. I had no, I mean, the, very often the comments like, I had no idea. <laughs> right. um, and DC is one of the most educated cities probably in the world. I mean, so many people with master's degrees, PhDs in this, in this city but so few people have any kind of baseline education on race, uh, even where racial ideology came from. And so how do you have productive conversations about race when people know so little about it? Right. And we're just coming so often from places of ignorance, and it's almost a waste of time when people are just spouting opinions that they've learned, you know, through memes or, you know, um, you know, just like very superficial sort of like things that we pick up through osmosis. And some of them may be true, some of them may be completely wrong. Um, so the class really helps to help challenge people's sort of assumptions about race. You know, we talk about where the word Caucasian comes from. Like people have no idea. We, we throw it around like it means something, but it, we don't know how, even how those types of words came into being. Sure. Um, so, yeah, so, but there's a lot, there's a lot of life change. And I think the great thing about the class is so many African-Americans, Asian-Americans and whites all have appreciated the class and all have appreciated the conversation that happens. So you rarely, I think, see where kind of everybody, and of course there are some outliers who really drop out of the class because they can't handle any criticism of the United States or whatever, you know, um, but by and large, the response is very positive across racial lines uh, to the class and to the conversations that take place. So that's really rewarding and satisfying to see um, how many people have learned from the class across racial lines. Mm -hmm. So there's some encouragement. <laughs> Absolutely. No, there is. And yeah, that's. Yeah, you, what, you know, one of my teachers always said, what you look for, you will find. And you can, <laughs> you can focus on one side of the conversation, you can focus on the other. And, and you've helped me just hear more stories of like this stuff. There are people that are, are trying. There are people that are learning. There are people that are growing. The conversation is happening. It is robust. It is diverse. And it's good. And that's, that's beautiful. But Brent, what kind of question do you got? Yeah, so I, I mean, along those lines of you know what what you look for, you'll find. I, I think a lot of people, um, their experience with this topic is often in like a chart or numbers or whatever. Um, and what I've found to be far more illuminating for me are, are just hearing stories of people like what is life like for an individual person and 
that story is not going to apply to everyone um, or even a lot of people like it. It can be a very individual story, but if you get a lot of stories, then you can start to have a little bit of a grasp of uh, what life is like. And, and that brings illumination to those numbers. Like what are, what are some of the things that, um, that, that you see Steve in, in your teaching um, that opens the doors for people? Like what, what are ways that people can um, grasp this on a, on a more fundamental level and not just a, you know, a head knowledge level? Yeah. Um, and I, I do also want to say, you know, the race, race literacy one-on-one is done now virtually. So any, you know, any of your listeners can, and can now take the course. Uh, we try to, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much donation based. We try to make it very affordable. Um, and we're, we are now going to package the curriculum and, and condensed curriculum to bring it to churches to, to, to have the material with our small group facilitators um, doing it virtually or even in person, um, you know, helping people through learning this material and go, having um, meaningful small group discussions as well. So it is available for people to take. Um, there is, you know, there is personal sharing, you know, in this first class, we ask people to share, like, when is the first time you realize that race was a real thing when you first realize that you were black or you were white or that this group that were treated differently than this group because of how they physically looked. And so we kind of ask people to sort of think back on, on personal, you know, personal terms. So, you know, we incorporate that. We, we incorporate like, you know, the theology and, and spiritual formation and, and, and maybe some of the things that they learned in church, you know, um, when it comes to, you know, what is shalom, what is righteousness, what did you learn about unity? Um, but there, we go, yeah, far beyond charts to, you know, actual real history. Um, the historical part is also very important. I think personal sharing is a, very important as well. Because if we don't learn the history, we don't understand how we got to where we are as a country and and as a church too. Um, so you know, if we don't if we don't learn about redlining, we have no understanding of why a city like mine, average white family in the D.C. area, has eighty one times the wealth of the average black family uh, in D.C. So unless you sort of understand the history of redlining and 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 uh, seg- residential segregation, n- no amount of personal storytelling is going to help help us understand why that kind of wealth disparity exists. And you'll see this across like every major city in the United States. Hmm. Um, so that's why it's important to learn the history that these kind of very explicit racist policies created inequalities that are completely and very visibly with us in 2022. So you need all of the above. It's not an, to me, it's not an and or, um, because we just can't understand the magnitude just with personal storytelling. But of course, it's, it's hard to understand. It's much deeper when a personal sh- person shares how those policies impacted their family or how, you know, so you kind of need both. Um, and so that's what, you know, we try to incorporate it, it into the class. And so, and to be honest with you, the history itself is fascinating. I mean, it's like, I, if I learned this in school, I would have been much more interested about history because it's history that actually helps you understand current events and understand present day and the neighborhood you grew up in and the church you went to, you grew up in, like, when history illuminates the present in such a way, it becomes way more interesting than if it's just like a set of facts or, you know, because it doesn't really necessarily help you understand why are we experiencing these things? Why are neighborhoods so segregated? So, so the history aspect is crucially important. Uh, And, and, you know, and we include statistics and, and, and as well. And so, you know, I think all of, all of that is important. And, um, and there's no quick fix. I mean, we, we, but we need, do need to learn. We have to commit ourselves to learn. Otherwise we're just going to 
kick the can down the road. And it's our children and our grandchildren who are going to have to carry the burden of trying to uh, work out um, reconciliation and, and unity building because we were too unwilling, uh, didn't have the fortitude or the commitment to work on this. And um, we're just handing it off this burden and this um, to the next generation. And to be honest with you, so many young people will leave because we're unwilling to deal with hard things and, and unwilling to deal with hard reality. So, you know, you probably know the statistics better than mine, better than I, of how many young people, you know, Gen Z and you know, millennials are leaving the institutional church because it just doesn't seem relevant to the reality that they're experiencing. And so there is a cost to not dealing with this, not confronting this. Mm. Um, and we will be, uh, yeah, our, our kids and our grandkids will inherit this debt in a sense that we're unwilling to, to pay. <laughs> yeah. So let me, um, let me, let me toss this final question into a, we're going to make this like, we always love to give like an underhanded softball lob for you to smash out of the park. What is it that, what is it that people can do to help support the work of little lights? What is it that you need? What is it that people need to know about? Where is the place that people can, whether it's contributing resources or energy or time or spreading the word, what is it that Little Lights could use the most help with and what they're doing in your little corner of DC? Yeah, you know, you know, the pandemic has definitely been challenging time uh, in so many ways. And, um, but, you know, Little Lights has, has uh, you know, been able to go strong and even start new programs like the college and career program. So, I'm, you know, I'm very excited about our college and career program. It's like incredibly practical and in-depth support for um, very low income, you know, youth living in very deep poverty, uh, finding a track and the support to go to college and even go to college with very little debt in, in some cases. Um, so very excited about our college and career program, wanting, you know, that to, to deepen and expand. Um, I'm ex- also excited about the race literacy class as well. Um, you know, since since the pandemic and we went virtual, you know, we've had, I think, over 800 people take the class uh, virtually. Um, and so to be able to to see so many people's lives and, and, and minds impacted and even use, you know, using technology, even if we can't meet in person, uh, has been really um, exciting. And it's something we want to keep growing. We want to take it to churches. We want to have you know, an African-American church and an Asian-American church and a predominantly white church all sort of take the class together and cross racial lines and have a meaningful dialogue and, and make progress and not be stuck. Um, so very excited about that. And, and also getting back to more normal, like having all the in-person volunteers and, and, and church groups come and volunteer in person, um, you know, stay at our, we have a, a house that, you know, Groups can come and and stay at while they volunteer with us. So we're excited about things hopefully becoming more and more normal and and, uh, and seeing everything kind of be fully back in person as it was. Um, so, the, you know, those are some of the things we're excited about and, and eventually like expanding into a, a new neighborhood is, is something that we have on the horizon as well. So, uh, but yeah, it's very important, you know, obviously people praying for us, people coming and volunteering. But it's also obviously important to have financial support because the, the reality is vast majority of churches don't have a budget or a line item to support uh, work, poverty work in their own cities or in their own towns. Or if it's, it's a really small line item in the budget. So many churches may have overseas missions budget. But no budget or very little budget for work being done in their own communities or in their own city or domestically. And so it's always a challenge for organizations like ours to be financially sustainable because obviously the people we serve can't pay. But a lot of churches, this is not urban ministry or ministry to people who are in poverty, is not part of the theological paradigm of what it means to be a church, which is, you know, obviously sad 
Um, and so we're very dependent on individual donors uh, because we have very little, you know, institutional support. We have some churches that give, you know, uh, every year, but we have far, far more individual donors uh, who give $100, $50, $200, $500 to help us be um, a representation and expression of the kingdom of God uh, in our city, you know, in, in public housing communities um, in D.C. So those are, those are some of the things I'm excited about. LittleLights.org is our website. I encourage people to check it out. We have a YouTube channel, too. There's a lot of great videos there. So just get to know us um, and become more familiar with the work that we do. Yeah, I was just going to ask. So littlelights.org is the website. That'll be in the show notes. Uh, You have a YouTube channel that will be in the show notes. Any other uh, place people should find you or get connected? Yeah, we're on Facebook and Instagram and even uh, LinkedIn, too. So Twitter. So um yeah, I think you know, those are probably the, the best places. And, and if they want to email me personally, it's steve at littlelights.org. Um, but yeah, I encourage people to kind of get to know us. And yeah, I realize uh, there's, a, um, there's a really, uh, you know, precious work of God being done, uh, even though yeah, most people haven't, haven't heard of us. So please check us out. Well, I'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes for sure. Um, but man... I feel like we just scratched the surface of, of all the work that you're doing. And we, we could easily talk for another hour. Um, so <laughs> I, I appreciate uh, everything that you've shared. Oh, thanks. Yeah, Steve, I'll, I'll echo that and just say thanks for joining us. And, and it was a, it's a helpful conversation to me personally. I, I'm sure it is for so many others just to keep hearing about what God's up to, what he's doing, what he's doing through others in different parts of the world and different parts of the country. It's just good for us to to listen and learn and consider and and get to know new efforts, new faces, new stuff. So appreciate you being willing to introduce yourself here and look forward to next time I'm in D.C. We're going to have to connect and uh, come say hi. That's great. And if I'm ever in Idaho, Brett, I'll, I'll definitely look you up too. <laughs> I, I, do, I do appreciate the fact that you probably have far fewer reasons to come here than I do to come to D.C. So, uh, you never know. <laughs> but yes, I, I do hope we have a chance to meet someday. That'd be amazing. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, if uh, anyone wants to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And you can find more details about uh, the podcast at bamonestablishment.com. Uh, be sure to check out those show notes uh, for all the things that we talked about today with Steve. Uh, so thanks for joining us on the Baywall podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.